worth. All right, different kind of video. Uh, take a look here. Where am I? This is the great hall of judgment. Judgment? Oh, not to worry, Charlie. You'll go to heaven. All dogs go to heaven because unlike people, dogs are naturally good and loyal and kind. Oh, yeah, that's true. Welcome to doing whatever you wish. Oh, this is really a lovely place you got here. Eating whenever you please. Follow me. To a constant different climate. We keep it 73 degrees. We're still on Fahrenheit here. That's fine with me. Welcome to normal rat race. Oh boy. To order and calm instead. Ah, great. Welcome to being dead. What? You mean I'm. I'm. Stone cold, I'm afraid. I can't believe it. I've been murdered. I'm having trouble finding any goodness or loyalty here, but let me see. He killed me. I beg your pardon? There's a mistake been made here. I don't want to die. <laughs> you got the wrong guy. I was double-crossed by a dirty rat. Actually, this rat was a dog, but his car ran me down. I just blew out of jail. I just got back to town. Hey, this is hard to explain. May I speak to your superior? Because I don't want to die. Welcome to doing whatever you, you wish. You got the wrong guy. Laughing and singing all day. Hey, listen, my time's not up yet. Oh, it is. There's no mistake about that. We know everything. Murdered in the prime of my life. That car face, I'll kill him. One of Hollywood's great classics. All dogs go to heaven. Benjamin Franklin said that there's only two sure things in life. You know what they are? Yeah, death and taxes death and taxes and <clears throat> we have to all think about taxes at least once a year but death a recent CBS uh, poll uh, reported back that 54 percent of American adults never or rarely think about death and that's proved out in action only 40 percent of American adults have a will or end-of-life directives now that um, I think is coupled with the way um, culture, our culture has changed so radically, say just in the last hundred years. So it used to be that people would die with their families, they'd get older and they would die with their families. Uh, every, everybody saw death as part of life. Um, children would see uh, grandparents die and so forth. All of that's changed. Now people conveniently die in hospitals or retirement homes or hospices. And the, 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 this, the separation from that aspect of life has become, uh, it's become pretty uh, common. And some, it's interesting, as, as parents, we see uh, changes in the mindset about uh, death regarding children. When, I, when our children were small, we, uh, we taught them a prayer that I had been taught when I was a child. Now I lay me down to sleep. Anyone know that, that prayer? Yep. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. And, it, and then how's it go? And we thought, isn't that horrible? 
Five-year-old child's praying is, if I should die before I wake, that's the last thought on their mind as they're going to sleep. And so we changed that so our children would be traumatized. I don't know if we changed it or if we got it from somebody else. <clears throat> but we'd pray, have him pray instead. And in the morning when I would wake, make me a good boy for Jesus' sake. Wait a minute. Was that the prayer you had me pray? Because we don't want our children, we don't want them up close and personal with death. It's interesting how more and more parents, and maybe you're like this as well, try to shield their children from death. We don't want to take the children along to viewings. We don't want to take them along to funerals because it's, it's, it's traumatic. We fear it will be traumatic. And we don't want our children to have to think about death. We want them to think about uh, baseball and candy at grandma's and really the good things in life. I think it's natural, all of us would say this, I think that it's natural to keep death, death at arm's length. Nobody wants to think about death. But here's what I wonder. I wonder if in our culture the idea of keeping death at arm's length could be linked with keeping God at arm's length. And here's what I mean. If I can pretend long enough that I'm not going to die. Then I can also pretend that there's nothing after this life or no inspection or no assessment or evaluation that might be done by an eternal God. And I could keep pretending that until I'm confronted with the doctor's report that says I'm terminal until I have to go to the funeral of a close relative or a dear friend. Actually, as long as it's somebody else's death, even that doesn't have to be, I, I might have to think about death for a little while, but that doesn't need to be long-lasting. But if the report is about me, now what? A brush with death often gets otherwise disinterested disinterested people thinking about God. Here's the problem. If someone who is not religious, someone who's not a Christian, has a brush with death and starts to get concerned about what happens after death and all the repercussions, the normal professionals that they call can't help. A plumber can't fix their problem. A doctor can't fix their problem if they're dying. An attorney can't fix their problem. Even a counselor can't fix their problem. They might be able to help them wrestle through a few things, but they can't fix the problem. Now, they might call a pastor, or they might call a Christian counselor, but probably don't know any. But what if they had a friend who was a follower of Jesus? I want you to turn with me to Luke chapter 13. And we're going to start reading at verse 18 through 30. There are two parables we're going to read first that Jesus told. And then he shifts locations and speaks to people that need to um, turn to God. And we're going to 
kind of look at those, uh, that conversation through the lens of these two parables. Starting in verse 13, Then Jesus said, What is the kingdom of God like? How can I illustrate it? It's like a tiny mustard seed that a man planted in a garden. It grows, becomes a tree, and the birds make nests in its branches. He also asked, what else is the kingdom of God like? It's like a yeast, a woman, the yeast a woman used in making bread. Even though she put only a little yeast in three measures of flour, it permeated every part of the dough. Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching as he went, always pressing on toward Jerusalem. And someone asked him, Lord, will only a few be saved? He replied, work hard to enter the narrow door to God's kingdom, for many will try to enter but fail. When the master of the house has locked the door, it will be too late. You will stand outside knocking and pleading, Lord, open the door for us. But he will reply, I don't know you. I don't know where you come from. And then you will say, but but, but we ate and drank with you and you taught in our streets. And he will reply, I tell you, I don't know you or where you come from. Get away from me, all you who do evil. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for you will see Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you will be thrown out. And people will come from all over the world, from east and west, north and south, to take their places in the kingdom of God. And note this. Some who seem least important now will be the greatest then, and some who are the greatest now will be least important then. Let's pray. Father, we pray for the Holy Spirit to be our teacher this morning. Not simply to fill us up with information, but to fill our hearts with uh, both hope and calling. I I pray that the walls that we intrinsically erect against the um, voice of the Spirit, the voice of the Word, those walls will be dismantled this morning and that you would be able to speak to us as you need to individually. You know, the, you know our hearts, you know our needs, you know our weaknesses, you know our sins, you know, you know our fears, you know our joys, you know our uh, misplaced affections and rightly placed affections. So you know what we need and we pray that you would speak to us this morning in those personally um, pertinent ways. On the other hand, we pray that our ears would be deaf to the thoughts and the ideas and the promptings of the enemy who hates you and hates us, and he for sure hates people trying to get into your kingdom. And so we pray you bind him this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Ten years ago, my wife and I were in Jordan in the Middle East, and Jordan is one of the few remaining kingdoms in the world. Whereas kingdoms used to be uh, commonplace, there's only 27 of them left, and only three of them are true kingdoms. Because uh, King Abdullah II of Jordan is a constitutional monarch. That means that his uh, decisions, his choices, are checked 
by the Constitution that uh, their country has. That's true of most of the kingdoms of the world. There's only three left that are absolute, uh, where the king of like Oman or Swaziland, they can do whatever they want. Now, it's true. Um, some monarchies, regardless of the Constitution, regardless of the parliament, kings will do whatever they please. But only three absolute And when Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God here, he's talking about a a kingdom in which God is absolute and exercises his power in an absolute way. Now, not in the full way. Theologians talk about the kingdom of God as the now and not yet. Because the kingdom is breaking in upon the world, but it's not here in all of its fullness until the day when God has a new heaven and new earth. And just as a side note, uh, Jesus often referred to the kingdom of heaven, uh, especially in Matthew. That means the same thing, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, same thing. It is this, this reign of God, this, this rule, this sphere of his uh, power. And so Jesus, when he came to earth, he says, the kingdom has come among you. In other words, I'm bringing the power of God here. And so every time Jesus heals someone, there was an inbreaking of kingdom power. Every time God, uh, Jesus cast out a demon, there was an inbreaking of kingdom power. And you come to faith in Christ, there's a, there's a break in of kingdom power into your life. The church is part of this kingdom. But the church, is that's not the end of the kingdom. Every place where God exerts His power is part of the uh, kingdom of God. And so it's fair to speak about when Jesus is talking here about entering the kingdom of God. He's talking about uh, coming, to, coming to salvation. And I want to look at these, uh, pa- this passage this morning at, from two vantage points. One, Jesus clues for getting into the kingdom. So He's speaking to people that need Uh, the Savior, and then secondly, his crews, i.e. those of us who know Christ already, for getting people into the kingdom. Now, this talk that Jesus had with people who are not uh, part of the kingdom, I see four keys that he shares here, four clues that he shares for getting into the kingdom. And the first one appears in verse 24. He says, make sure this matters to you. He says, work hard to enter the narrow door to God's kingdom. Anytime we see the word work in the New Testament when speaking about salvation, I don't know about you, but I kind of get jittery and I get nervous. I, 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 I want to make sure that people don't start thinking, okay, the way to enter God's kingdom is for me to start being a really good person, uh, for me to help old ladies across the, lo- the road, sorry, elderly, um, and to do really nice things and be good to my husband and be good to my wife and to make sure I, I'm very charitable with my resources and And all of those things will enable me to enter God's kingdom. That's not what Jesus meant. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For it is by grace you are saved through faith, and this not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should have anything to boast about. What Jesus is talking about here is intentionality. Intentionality. Let's say, for example, we have a young couple, they're living together, not married, both of them say they want to get married. Now, in most cases, it's the woman who tends to want to get married more readily than the man. Men, we are by nature kind of loose living, and we really like our freedom, yada, yada, yada. And so they say, both say they want to get married, but never really talk about a ring, never really have a discussion about a date. And, 
And finally, the woman pushes one day and she says, when are we ever going to get married? He said, we're going to get married. Do you really want to get married? Sure, I want to get married. Well, can we talk about a, a, a date? Well, 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 we'll get to that somewhere. Can we talk about buying a ring? We'll, we'll get to that point somewhere. Can we go talk to your parents? We'll get to there someday. This is the kind of thing that Jesus is addressing. Most people will tell you and me, if we push them, about what are you, if they don't know Christ, what are you going to do about God's evaluation of you after that? They're like, I'm going to get around to that, right? If they believe in God at all, they, they, they're either going to get around to it or they're, they're kind of hoping that whatever they're doing is acceptable to God. They, they haven't really explored what's true. They haven't really uh, tried to determine what, what God's looking for. Jesus is saying you've got to be intentional about this because the kingdom of God has eternal implications. It needs to matter to you. Make sure it matters to you. That's clue number one for getting into the kingdom. Second clue, make sure you use the right door. Again, verse 24, work hard to enter the narrow door to God's kingdom for many will try to enter but will fail. And we talked about this the other week about how troubled people are in our culture, that those of us who are followers of Jesus think that that's the only way to be approved by God. Just this past week, there's a, a, a pastor in a mega church, church about 10,000 in Harlem, uh, Harlem, New York, who came out public and, publicly and said, this idea that Jesus is the only way to God, the only path to God, is insanity. This is a church and we see this, so we see this not only in the culture, we're, we're finding it even in the church today, people very troubled by the idea that Jesus is the only way, even though Jesus himself said, I'm the only way. No one could come to the Father but by me. Acts 4.12, there's no other name given among men beneath, under heaven by which we must be saved. No other way. Listen to this in John chapter, John chapter 10, Jesus says these words, verse 9. I am the gate. Those who come in through me will be saved. And we will say, well, he didn't say that if you go in through some other way, you'll be saved. I, I think the message is pretty clear. Through me, you will be saved. And I think we have to be uh, careful about this today in terms of how we go about this with people um, because we have to kind of help them walk through the ideas uh, that they think that all paths could potentially lead to God. Most people don't um, believe that about many other things in their lives. They, they don't really think that there's, a, like if I jump out of an airplane, is, are there other ways um, to get to the ground safely besides a parachute? And, you know, can I just do it on my own and just kind of, uh, you know, when I get three feet off the ground, just kind of jump lightly? No, people don't typically believe these kinds of things that they apply to the idea of the, of the afterlife and what, what comes next. Make sure you use the right door. Now, don't forget this is before Jesus went to the cross. And so now we can give clarity to what that door looks like. Now, Jesus died and rose again to save sinners like me, like whoever we're talking to talking to make sure you use the right door the third one is in verse 25 make sure you get there on time 
When the master of the house has locked the door, it will be too late. Period. It's a day coming when I'm either going to breathe my last or Jesus is going to come back. Master locks the door. Too late. Sorry, too late. And then the fourth clue that he gives in here is make sure you're not counting on the wrong things. I'm not sure where I'm seeing that. Let me read verses 25 to 30. When the master of the house has locked the door, it will be too late. You will stand outside knocking and pleading, Lord, open the door to us. But he will reply, don't know you. Don't know where you've come from. Then you'll say, but, 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 but wait a minute, we ate and drank with you. We, you taught in our streets. These are the same kind of folks in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 to 6, that uh, are described as they saw the work of the Spirit. They were, they were on the periphery of the crowd when Jesus did miracles, when the apostles were doing miracles. They're seeing evidence of people coming to faith in Christ. They're watching the impact of the Spirit. But they haven't participated. They, they haven't stepped into it. They're seeing, they're hearing, they're observing. They're seeing effect. And so in Jerusalem or, or in Tiberias or Capernaum, they, Jesus, we saw, you, we saw you teach in our streets. We were at the feeding of the 5,000. We ate some of that miracle bread that you passed out. Um, we know who you are. We, 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 we ate and drank with you. I don't, I'm sorry, I don't know you. It's kind of like saying, well, you know, I, I used to go to church. Well, it's not going to get it done. To be in the vicinity of exposure to what is right does not make you get right. You, you, I, I, you can't trust in somebody else who trusts in God. You, you need to trust in God yourself. You can't simply sit beside somebody who trusts in Christ. You need to trust Him yourself. I tell you, I don't know you or where you come from. Get away from me, all you who do evil. And don't forget here, he's probably speaking almost exclusively to Jewish people. And he says about them, uh, it's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for you will see Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you will be thrown out. In other words, they, 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 all the pillars of their faith they know are going to get into the kingdom not unexpected. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the prophets, not unexpected. I expect to see them there. But it was widely believed in Jesus' day by Jewish people that the, uh, the kingdom is going to be occupied pr primarily by most of the Jews. There's going to be a few bad guys that don't get into the kingdom, but most of the Jews and a few really righteous Gentiles. That was the common thought of the day. And so this would have been a horrific uh, adjustment of thought for these people to hear Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the prophet's going to be there, but not you. Not me. But I'm, I, I'm Jewish. I, I, my family and I, we've been down at the temple making sacrifices all, all, all the time. Or we go to the synagogue regularly. We celebrate all the feast days. We give alms to the poor. We do all the right stuff. My, my last name is Cohen. 
no you're going to be on the outside in fact Jesus goes further and he goes on to say and people will come from all over the world he's speaking now about the Gentiles this is this is euphemism for the Gentiles from the east the west the north and the south take their places in the kingdom of God and some who seem least important now to you will be the greatest then and some who are the greatest now will be least important then can can you imagine having all your hopes banked for eternity on the wrong things it's not any different today is it there are a ton of people in churches all over this country indeed all over this world that are banking on the wrong kinds of things they're counting on the fact that they've gone to church X amount of times they're counting on the fact that they pray before meals they're counting on the fact that they grew up in a Christian home or they went to a Christian school they're counting on the fact that they've been around the religious things all their lives they're counting on the fact that they don't do porn they're counting on the fact that they're a really nice person they're counting on the fact that they go to the local community charities and pay the money and money goes to good causes they're counting on all of the wrong things Jesus says I am the way the truth and the life Jesus came here gave up everything he had in heaven for the likes of you and me so that he could go to the cross and he could die once and for all the righteous for the unrighteous the sinless for the sinners and so that we could be saved not by our works but by his one single work I trusted him I, isn't that, is that exciting to you that you have been saved by such a grand gift from a grand savior rather than all you putting into the, trying to put in the pot I was a Christian so many years before it finally dawned on me it's not Jesus plus all that I'm doing it's Jesus plus nothing praise his name we're going to sing a song a little later that talks about that talks about the shackles throwing Christ throwing our sinful shackles in the sea and it it's the kind of song you're going to saddle up and get it excited about so get ready clap your hands stomp your feet whatever you whatever you very exuberant people like to do all right his clues for getting into the kingdom let's talk about us now the the believers who are part of should be part of his crews for getting people into the kingdom now we're going to go back and look at these two parables um, if you've been here long enough you've heard me at some point reference something that the theologians call the divine passive how many of you remember what this is Oh, it's not even review. Okay. Divine passive. Whenever a Bible writer speaks about God but doesn't mention his name, you know, passive is a work done by somebody else, right? So um, somebody might say, for example, the car was being driven down the street. Doesn't mention who the driver was. We just know the action was taking place without knowing who was doing the action. That's the passive voice. You loved grammar, amen? 
That's a passive voice. So divine passive is this idea that God is kind of behind the curtain. He's doing the action, but he's not specifically mentioned. So for example, um, a lot of this in the Sermon on the Mount, Beatitudes, uh, Matthew 5, 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be what? Be what? Com- comforted, right. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted by who? God. Divine passive. Go to the next chapter, chapter 6, verse 33. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things, i.e. your food, your clothing, your shelter, all these things will be be added unto you. Passive. Who's going to add them to you? God. Divine passive. Now there's such a thing that I have termed, theologians don't call it this, the human passive. I think is in this passage. Human passive. I'll give you an example of it here. John, just so you believe I'm not toying with you. John chapter 6, verse 29. That doesn't sound right. It's 39. Verse 39. And this is the will of God. Jesus is speaking. This is the will of God, that I should not lose even one of all those he has given me, but that I should raise them up at the last day. So he's talking about saved people. For it is my Father's will that all who see his Son and believe in him should have eternal life. I will raise them up at the last day. Now, how how many of you who know Christ came to Christ through the influence and the witness of someone else? Someone else. Put up your hands. Probably most of us. Probably most of us. Um, praise God, we're hearing of people coming to faith in Christ out of places like Iran and, and especially in the Muslim world, uh, primarily through visions. And because the missionaries can't get there and the churches are really constrained there and so forth. And so we're seeing a lot of Muslim people come to Christ because of vision. Praise God. But the vast majority of people still are coming to Christ because of and through someone else's witness. And the scriptures tell us that that is the norm and that is the calling. Um, Romans chapter 10, beginning of verse 13. Paul says, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they've never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? Who's going to tell them? Back to our parables. Human passive. Here's where I see the human passive. First parable, what's the kingdom of God like? Like a tiny mustard seed that a man planted in a garden. It grows and becomes a tree, and the birds make nests in its branches. Now, I think the seed is Jesus. See the mustard uh, mustard seed, Jesus. So he's the... um, Remember, he's, Jesus says, unless a plant falls into the ground and dies, it cannot produce a crop, so um, can't bear fruit. So Jesus dies. He's the mustard seed. The, um, the, 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 the tree or the shrub is growing, and this is the kingdom of God. It's growing. It's flourishing. Now, is Jesus both the seed and the gardener? Second parable. So a woman's baking bread. She has the flour there, and she adds the little pieces, little tiny pieces, right, of yeast so is 
Jesus both the baker and the yeast? Or is he only the seed? And is he only the baker? And if he is, who's the gardener? Who's the yeast? You and I are. Now, don't get me wrong. The power is still God's, right? 1 Corinthians 3, 6, Paul says, I planted, he's talking about ministry fruit. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase, or God made it grow. So just like this shrub in the garden, I planted, Apollos watered it, God made it grow. Here's what's really cool. The verse right before that verse goes like this. Got to find it here. Each of us did the work the Lord gave us. Each of us did the work the Lord gave us. Now we can work until the cows come home and not bear any fruit if the Lord is not working in and through us. By the same token, what happens if we don't work? Each of us did the work that God gave us to do. You see, the kingdom tree grew because of people. The kingdom bread grows because of people. Jesus sent out the 72 on mission. He sent out the 12 on mission. He sent out Grace Point Church on mission, Gap Community Church on mission, Calvary Monument Church on mission, Bellevue Presbyterian St. John Methodist on mission. And he sent out Keystone Church on mission. Now, anytime we talk about mission here, I always worry about the temptation for us to see it in such a corporate sense that we're kind of relieved of individual responsibility. You understand what I'm saying? That's the church's job. It's the church's job to engage in mission. And so whether that's paying for missionaries or whether that's having people go out on a Tuesday night knock-on-door campaign kind of approach or, or maybe the church is going to plan some event like VBS where we get lots of people in and we, we get them saved. The, the church gets them saved. Just for the record, we don't understand that to be the biblical model. The idea that people would simply come, we try to persuade people to come to church meetings to get them saved. You don't see that in the New Testament. When the people gather together in the New Testament, the purpose is to the to equipping of the saints so that the saints can be dispatched into their spheres of influence, whether work or school or community or extended family, to be salt and light into a dark and tasteless world. Which means that you and I have been commissioned, we have been sent on mission personally, specifically. It was asked of Jesus in this passage, Lord, will only a few be saved? Will only a few be saved? And I, I wonder if Jesus would have had a different response to that. It's interesting. He doesn't say, he doesn't answer the question. But I'm wondering if in his mind he's thinking, well, the answer to that depends. It depends. And I, I, and I wonder if he would have had, a, um, if he'd have had believers 
gathered around him, if his conversation with them might have been different than his conversation with these lost people. Because the bottom line is that most non-kingdom people, people who are not in the kingdom, they're, they're not paying attention to these four clues that Jesus gave them how to enter the kingdom. They don't really even care. That's why they're not paying attention. They, they just don't care. How does that affect you and me to know that people that we work with and people that we go to school with and some of the people that we're related to and the people that live on, uh, uh, behind us and next door to us don't care about the kingdom? And because we have increasingly uh, excluded death and the thinking about death from our lives, is we, they're not even pushed to care. If surrounded by those who already were already saved, I wonder what Jesus might have said to them. Well, <clears throat> well, if you be saved, I, I don't know. Are are you, Keith, doing what I ask you to do? Are you doing what I called you to do? Are you showing my love to Sarah and to Ethan? How's that, how's that going? Check, uh, check my records, but I don't think you've had any contact with them in the last, last two years or so. Yeah, well, Lord, I've been really busy. Yeah, I, I see that. And, uh, you know, Ethan kind of weirds me out. I, he has some really disgusting habits, personal habits. Like, did you know he picks his nose? Yep. And here's a list of your disgusting habits. I, I, I wonder what would happen. Let's say this morning... Between the two services, we're going to have 400 people, 12 and over, here. I wonder what would happen if for the next three years, we prayed for a particular person and we took intentional steps in that person's life to get them to the point where they might wrestle with the clues that Jesus gave. One of the things that we've been doing as elders the last number of months is assessing Keystone's church, where we're strong and where we're weak. And one of the things that is glaringly obvious that we're weak in is fruitful evangelism. Just not seeing folks come to Christ. And so imagine if 400 of us really did did what God calls us to do. And three years from now, we get together and we talk with each other and we find out that 100 people or 200 people, shoot, 80 people, came to faith in Christ. You know, 80 people in three years, that's fruitful. You know, the average church in America sees two conversions a year. Two conversions a year. So here, if, if you have your bulletin on you, I want you to pull out the sermon notes if you haven't. And I want to challenge each of us this morning. 
I want you to write down. Um, well, I'm going to pray for us first. Instead of praying at the end of the sermon, I'm going to pray for us now and ask God to speak to you and to speak to me. And then I'll give you specific instructions. Father, I pray that you would uh, speak to us individually. Um, not to worry about the person that's next to me or in front of me or behind me. Speak to us individually. Start with me. About what you want us to do. For the people that are living next to us and going to school with us and working with us and that we pass in the road for the people. But the, the, the folks that we're in partnership with, at least in terms of proximity, what do you want us to do with them? Open our hearts, Lord. Um, if we're hard-hearted, break through that hardness. Open our hearts. If we're fearful, break through fear. Um, realize that you'll not ask us to do anything that you don't equip us to do. In Jesus' name, amen. So here's what I'm asking you to do. First of all, that you'd put a name in there. Who is God sending you to? Who is God sending you to? Might be your neighbor, might be your classmate, teammate, somebody you work with, somebody in your family. Secondly, will you put that person on your prayer list? Uh, some of you know I'm not a real big prayer list guy, but I've, 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 I have a prayer list now. I just can't remember everything. And I have one of my uh, smartphones. There's wonderful apps out there for this. And um, you should have at least some things on a prayer list because you can't remember them. Third thing, what's your first step? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? So we have some neighbors that... that already on my my list we have some neighbors last couple years so we invite them over for a picnic and each year we get buy Christmas gifts and we take them around to the houses and, and one lady has cancer and we're gonna figure out what can we do to help serve you this year first steps in other words in, we're talking about intentionality here third um, is it your goal, and this, uh, there's a box there so you can check if this is true, is it your goal to share the gospel when God opens the door? So asking you to establish some intentionality about this and three years from now, see what in the world God does. Now here's a, here's a way to just encourage each other. Go up, to the, go up to a believer some Sunday and say, who's your person? Just give, give each other a chance to tell your story. Who's your person? I don't need to... And any other details are probably going to share. Who, who's your person? And if they say, huh? Then you have an opportunity to say, oh, weren't you here the other week when Pastor Keith was talking about it? And you can kind of be a, an evangelist for this effort. Now, now listen, part of what you're going to be praying about is to guard you against making this person a project, but to build God's love in your heart for, your per, for this person. They're not a project. There's somebody made in the image of God that he deeply loves and he desires to see them come to know the Savior and let God's love overflow out of your heart into their lives.